Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, Mesenchymal Stem Cell Culture, Challenges and Solutions for Isolation, Expansion, and Maintenance. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Chain, Scientific Director of Research and Development at the Oklahoma Blood Institute. Dr. Jennifer Chain is an experimental immunologist with primary expertise in cell isolation, cell culture, and flow cytometry. She began her scientific career nearly 22 years ago and has worked in academic research, biotechnology, consulting, and nonprofit research and development. In her postdoctoral fellowships at National Jewish Health and University of Colorado at Denver, she worked on gamma delta T cell activation and function then on memory T-cell responses in autoimmune and clinical lung disorders. Following her academic training, Dr. Chain worked to develop new diagnostic testing panels at a biotech startup company in Oklahoma before starting her own independent R&D consulting firm. In her current position at the Oklahoma Blood Institute, where she serves as the scientific director of R&D, Dr. Chain is responsible for leading the development of new blood and cell-based products and contract research and manufacturing services for the cell therapy industry. Dr. Chain is also a consultant and liaison from OBI to the cell therapy industry to develop custom product and services for industry partners and to educate the industry on the many ways nonprofit community blood centers can promote the development of cell therapies. Dr. Chain, I wanted to start by asking you if you could tell us a bit about the Oklahoma Blood Institute and what you do there. The Oklahoma Blood Institute is the sixth largest independent blood bank in the U.S., and our network extends across Oklahoma, Arkansas, and parts of Texas. We have almost 1,000 employees within our network, and we're a not-for-profit 501c3 charity. We collect close to 300,000 blood products every year. And since blood products are regulated as drugs by the FDA, we actually are a not-for-profit pharmaceutical company, and we manufacture close to 1,200 drugs every day. And our primary mission is, of course, to collect, test, store, and distribute safe blood products to our area hospitals, and they use those products for transfusion. We have over 200 um, hospitals and medical facilities that we supply blood to. The last few years, we've been extending our mission the community by helping support the growing cell therapy and regenerative medicine industries. And we're doing that with R&D towards novel blood products, blood source products that can be used for therapy development and support cell culture growth. I'd like to learn a little bit more um, about some of the projects that you're working on at OBI. Okay. There's a few that I wanted to mention, and if any of them you want to discuss further, I'd be happy to. So I do some contract research. There are some labs that they need access to human cells or they don't really have, they work on mice, and so they don't really have the human expertise. And so they really look to us to help them isolate these cells and stimulate them and culture them to support their research projects. And so they've really tapped into our existing expertise and our developed methods. And so I do some of that. And that supports cancer research and autoimmune studies throughout the country. Um, I have a a really exciting project manufacturing a clinical trial treatment that's a stem cell-based treatment for dry eye disease. And so this came to OBI through a a company, um, an eye doctor and a scientist, 
and they were looking to turn their research protocol into a clinical protocol in order to manufacture this treatment. And so I developed their clinical protocol and manufactured the treatment, and they have been using it in the clinical trial, and it's been helping people um, heal their dry eye disease. So it's really exciting. And soon we'll move the manufacturing of that treatment into uh, our clean room space, and we'll scale up for a larger clinical trial. So it's been exciting to be involved with that. Another thing that I'm also really excited about is that I have, you know, my background is in gamma delta T cells. And so I really wanted to try and get back into working with them in some capacity. And so I have identified blood source that's actually really highly enriched for these tissue resident gamma delta cells. These gamma delta cells that normally live in the tissue and help fight off infections and cancer development in the tissues and organs. And I found these cells in a a blood source. And so... Um, you know, looking up and learning about these cells, there's not a lot of information available, but what it does look like is that this population is primed for a cancer response and would make a good adoptive therapy or a platform for CAR-T therapy. And so this project, I just need to gather some more data on the functions of this population and optimize the culture and expansion protocol in order to be fit for clinical use. And then possibly we could find partners who want to use it in their therapy development. And then finally, of course, the most exciting project that we have going on is is to develop um, cadaveric bone marrow-derived mesenchymal stromal cells as a suitable product for research and therapy development. That sounds really interesting. Um, I wanted to dive in a little bit and ask you why you're working to isolate MSCs from cadaveric bone marrow. There really is a shortage of mesenchymal stromal cells that can be used for therapy. So there's hundreds of clinical trials that are studying the potential use of MSCs for therapies, like um, turning down T-cell activity for graft-versus-host disease and autoimmunity, regenerating bone and cartilage, healing chronic wounds. So I think the shortage of material is for the growing number of therapies is going to be a problem in the future. And so... The two most common sources of MSCs are bone marrow and umbilical cord tissue. And so bone marrow donation is associated with risks and it's painful. And a lot of people just don't want to do it. Umbilical cord tissue, although it seems to be widely available, there are always babies being born. It's actually difficult to obtain in large numbers. The consenting process is really long and involved. There's issues of protecting the donor to deal with. And what I've seen is also it's more difficult to obtain MSCs from umbilical cord tissue without changing their growth and functional properties. There's a real need to find other sources of MSCs that are more sustainable. And there's been examples of bone marrow transplant physicians using bone marrow from the vertebral column for bone marrow transplants from a cadaveric donor. But in general, there's just really not that much data uh, characterizing MSCs from a cadaveric source and comparing it to MSCs from living source. And so really that's where we come in is we have access to some of this tissue. And so we think that if we can show data that cadaveric bone marrow derived MSCs expand and function like expected, then we can attract some partners who want to use it as a more sustainable source for their therapy. And part of this also, we need to be able to harvest the bone marrow in an FDA-compliant way. So we're, we're developing this as part of this effort as well. 
That's really interesting. Just to follow on with that, how similar are the MSCs from live versus cadaveric donors? So I think logically, there really is no reason to think that they would be different from a cadaveric bone marrow versus a living bone marrow. But I think that just the way scientists think is that we need proof. And biotech companies, if they're going to use the cells, develop therapies, they need proof. And of course, regulatory bodies are going to need to see the data before any of these therapies can be approved, before anybody's going to want to use them to develop their therapies. And so I think that's really where we're focusing is to give interested parties the proof that they need that these cells do work just like cells from live bone marrow donors. So, so far in my work, I've seen that cadaveric MSCs do express the ISCT-defined surface marker phenotype. This would be um, hematopoietic lineage negative and then positive for CD73, CD90, and CD105. And I see this as early as the first passage, and they seem to maintain this phenotype through at least passage four. They also have similar metabolic activity, similar proliferative potential as living donor-derived MSCs at the same stage of growth. And they also have more metabolic activity when they're in the presence of a hypoxic or nitrogen-rich environment, low-oxygen-rich nitrogen. They have more metabolic activity there compared to growing in like a normal oxygen environment. And so the hypoxic culture really mimics the environment of the wound site. So this allows us to confirm that they would be valid for use in like wound healing applications. I've also done a few migration experiments. I've really seen that if I put macrophages and keratinocytes in a trans well, that these cells will cross that trans well to get closer to the MSCs. And so we think cadaveric MSCs are drawing those cells to them, which is one of the major functions of MSCs in wound healing. Perfect. You know, a real interest to our audience in terms of the work that they're doing uh, is the key factors in culturing these cells. I'm sure everybody would be interested in hearing a little bit about that. Yeah, so I haven't done a lot of my own work in deciphering the media components, but what I do know that's very important is you definitely have to have specially defined media that's optimized for NSC growth. And like I said, I haven't teased out those specific things myself, so it's good to have access to growth media that's already optimized. But I do think it's important to use some kind of protein supplement like platelet lysate or human serum in your cultures. Um, Just doing a little bit of comparison, in the growth rate, I see that they're actually increased, the growth rate's increased in serum supplementation. Although I realize that not all clinical protocols allow for supplementation. They haven't been developed with supplementation. I do think it is important to use throughout the entire culture period. You may have touched on it a little bit, but what are the biggest scientific challenges that you're facing when culturing the cells? So I think just challenges to cell culture in general that I've encountered myself is every cell type grows differently, has different needs, needs different support medium and supplementation. And so you really have to care for each culture individually, know when to feed and split, et cetera. And so it's really... Uh, it's an art that you have to fine tune. And it's not easy. It, you think it might be easy, but there's all these little things that can happen that you just have to, to troubleshoot until, until it works. Um, and then specifically culturing human primary cells, MSCs and, and corneal stem cells that I've been culturing recently, is that cells from different donors just grow differently. Some don't grow at all, some grow fast, some grow slow. 
And so you really have to adapt. Even once you, you know how a cell type grows, you have to adapt to changes from individual to individual. And that's something I've definitely experienced. And then other challenges really are, are contamination, bacterial, fungal, and mycoplasma. And there's just a lot of things that can influence whether a culture becomes contaminated. And I, I feel like it's almost impossible to know when it happened or how it happened when it does. And, and then, of course, the trouble with mycoplasma is that it's just not detectable by eye, but it drastically changes the growth and functional properties of your cells. And so you really have to practice good technique and you have to test your cultures for things like mycoplasma to make sure that you're not contaminated. Yeah, we've had done a lot of articles on the topic of mycoplasma because it is such a challenge in the lab, but also in in uh, production too. I think a lot of people struggle with that and looking for ways to address mycoplasma contamination. Beyond, you know, sort of the challenges that you face when culturing cells, what are um, some other important factors that should be considered um, when selecting a media for expansion and maintenance of cells, in your opinion? So I think that it's important to see documentation. So if you're purchasing a media from somebody, from a company, important to see documentation that it's going to support the growth of the cells that you're studying. So in the case of MSC, is there evidence that MSC growth is supported with the media formulation? And with MSCs, I feel like it just needs to be just right. And so that's important. And when scientists publish their data, they need to be able to show that the basic phenotype of their cells is preserved so that they really are working with what they think they are. And I also think each scientist needs to determine ideal supplementation for their cultures. The industry is really moving away from animal-derived products like FBS, and I think that's a good thing. I think they should be moving away. So I would discourage starting or using FBS at all if if your plans are to go towards a clinical product. I think the FDA will be much more favorable to your manufacturing protocols in the absence of FBS. Could you tell me a little bit about how you see your work with cell culture and particularly with this idea of moving away from FBS evolving in the future? Yeah, so I was really fortunate to get like a a reagent grant award from Biological Industries. Uh, This was in 2018. And so they granted me a $25,000 award to use for products from their company. And this included their Nutristem MSC growth media and some HPL products and some other products that will help support the studies that I'm wanting to do, help support looking at the cells and their wound healing properties. And so, you know, I've been really fortunate to have that resource available and that that has really accelerated the project that looking at MSCs. And so biological industries really help make these projects possible. And so from that, really our short-term goal going forward is to gather enough data to publish and present that cadaveric MSCs are functional and useful for research and therapy. Can you please give us some examples of your collaborations or describe the collaborations that you wish to start? You know, we're not to that point where we have partners for the cadaveric MSC projects yet. You know, we're still trying to gather the data in order to attract the partners. And so we expect these types of partners to be academic labs, scientists from academic labs that are looking to transition from the basic research into clinical trials, clinical research, and spin out small companies. 
We don't necessarily expect our partners to be large, more established companies who already have the infrastructure built to do all this on their own. So really, you know, our goal is to help partners develop and grow and grow with their needs. And so, um, you know, starting out with with unestablished companies and unestablished investigators is probably where we see that going. But like I said, we have blood center partners. We have um, something called BioPartners, and it's six independent blood centers. And the goal of this group really is to share protocols and promote standardization of cell therapy product collection, and specifically with bone marrow and apheresis products. And so if we're able to do that on a small scale with the six blood centers, hopefully we can filter that out into the larger blood centers of America, which is the network of 52 independent blood centers. And so, you know, we already work with centers within that larger network on specific projects for cell therapy companies. And so there's really lots of great relationships out there in the blood center world to tap into that a new partner could not only have access to OBI's manufacturing capabilities and product capabilities, but the entire network potentially. Like I said, there's lots of opportunities there. I want to thank you so much for your time today. This has been so interesting. I really appreciate you spending the time with us. I'm wondering if, just to close, if there's anything else that you have that you'd like to add for our listeners today. I would just like to encourage scientists who are working with MSCs to really know yourselves beyond the minimal ISCT criteria. So the more you know about yourselves, the better you can understand your clinical data down the road, if that's your goal and how it's helping or not helping the patient. So I just think that's really important. And then finally, if anybody out there is looking for a manufacturing partner, not necessarily for cadaveric MSCs, but let us know at OBI if we can help. Um, We're establishing clean room space to support multiple cell therapy projects. And as a blood center, we have a lot of expertise in developing FDA-compliant manufacturing protocols. And we're really looking to grow with the needs of our partners. And so if you're working with a a nonprofit CMO with existing infrastructure, this is going to save a lot of money and time on development, and it might give you a strategic advantage when it's time to market your therapy. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for that, and really appreciate your time today, and thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.